Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we're talking to Carrie Wilkins, PhD, the co-founder and clinical director of the Center for Motivation and Change. She co-authored an award-winning book, Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, and co-wrote a user-friendly workbook for parents, The 20-Minute Guide, a guide for parents about how to help their child change their substance abuse. I love the approach that Carrie uses in the Center for Motivation and Change because the invitation to change approach is full of techniques that work with a ton of research behind them in place of the stigmatizing understandings of addiction that are so common and so harmful. The ITC responds to substance abuse with evidence-based methods for improving communication, strengthening motivation, reducing or stopping the use of substances, and practicing compassion and self-care to create the conditions for change. So I'm excited about this interview because I think it is so important 
to improve the understanding of evidence-based ideas and strategies for professionals, for you if you're struggling with substance abuse or people you love, as opposed to the previous black and white understanding of what it means to have an issue with alcohol or drugs. So Carrie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you and see if we can be helpful to your listeners. Oh, I'm sure you can. I know you can because I've been reading your materials and listening to you on podcasts. But just to start out, will you tell us a little bit about what made you go into this work? Yeah, I mean, it's... um I think every treatment professional has a little bit of a interesting personal history that lands them where they end up, whether we're conscious of that or not. <laughs> um, you know, I just to full disclosure with you, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Western Kansas and um, have some very dear women in my life who struggled with alcohol problems as I was growing up and, you know, in the generations prior to me. And, you know, there were no options and they, they suffered and struggled. And so I just, was familiar with it. And uh, then I went to graduate school and I was familiar with it and mad at how they were treated. Like I remember, I remember very distinctly feeling mad at how people talked about these women. How did people talk about the women? You know, just being mad at them for drinking, being mad at that, you know, just, they were just angry with them. You know, I mean, that was, it was still that old confrontational, you're not being a good mother, you're not being a good this, you're not being a good that, like lots of shame, shame-based stuff. And then I went to graduate school and I wasn't actually interested in substance use at, at all, but I had, um, you know, as you're a graduate student, you have um, your initial clients that you're working with. And I worked with this woman for a year. She was one of my last training clients and, you know, she was incredibly traumatized. And my supervisor, we were talking about the trauma and we were talking about having ongoing trauma and she was late to her sessions often. She was always sweaty and, you know, just a variety of issues. She had agoraphobia. She had a hard time leaving her house, just all sorts of stuff that as a new clinician, you're trying to understand and trying to be effective and trying to help this person. My last session with her, she told me that she was drinking two bottles of wine a night. I had never been trained to ask about substance use. So this is 25 years ago when I was in graduate school, 20 years ago, whatever it was, um, hadn't been trained to really assess. It had never come up in supervision, you know, as a thing to ask or be curious about. And I realized she was an alcohol withdrawal. Like so much of the stuff that I was seeing was alcohol withdrawal. Um, the sweatiness, the shakiness, everything that got my supervisor and my training had kind of glommed on to this is all trauma, this is all anxiety, which of course it was, but it was amplified by the drinking, which like not asking, you know, I'm sure I'm sure she would have told me. You know, I really, I think she probably would have told me, but I wasn't trained to ask. And I just was like, ah, that can never, that made me so mad. I was so furious. Um, and I was, you know, ready to go on internship at that point. And on internship, there was a substance use rotation. So I made sure I got in that rotation because I was like, I got to actually know how to manage this better. And then decided to stay on and worked in the um, substance use treatment program for postdoc and then just fell in love with it. And, and here I am. You know, one of the things that I, I mean, I told you I drank like a bottle plus of wine a night, like 365 nights a year, unless I was trying to like, quote unquote, moderate or take time off when I would get to like four days and then be like, oh, I've had a hard day, a good day, whatever. I'll just have a glass. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been um, 
not surprised at all that as I do this podcast, as I talk to women, as they write to me that drinking a bottle or more a night is not unusual at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many women do this and I'm sure men, I just, I just talk to women more. And yet, you know, I know I went to my doctor, my psychologist forever And, you know, they ask you to fill out the form. Do you smoke? Do you do drugs? Do you drink? How much? And I'd be like, couple glasses, couple times a week, right? Not a bottle of wine. You know, I think that the first time I ever wrote down the actual number was after I had quit. And I was so proud of myself. And it was like, how much do you drink? And I was like, not at all, but can't believe I did this. Months ago, I was drinking 35 to 40 drinks a week. And and the guy was like, what? And I was like, no, 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 I'm not drinking now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but that, that little part of you that had such a hard time acknowledging that, um, you know, classically, like people would say you were in denial, you were in denial. You didn't like, I, whenever people toss that phrase around, I'm like, really? Cause most of the people that I work with, like they know, Oh, yeah. and they're actually like really upset by it. And they're frustrated with themselves and they're struggling and they're suffering. The problem is in our society and, you know, going back to my original anger at how people were treating these women that I love, there's so much shame and stigma attached to substance use problems. You know, nobody wants to, and the reality is like, if you acknowledge that you were drinking that much, you would have instantly gotten a label of like, well, you're an alcoholic, you need to do X, Y, and Z, right? And nobody wants that label, which is all it is. It's a label that makes most people say, no, I'm not, I'm not that, right? I'm not that. (laughs) And I've heard a couple of things. I've heard either, oh my God, you're an alcoholic and you need to go to AA or Mm -hmm. you're not an alcoholic. You just need to cut back or you're not an alcoholic. Don't worry. Don't be so hard on yourself. Like I've heard psychiatrists, therapists, and doctors say that to people who actually finally admitted that they're worried about their drinking. Yeah. And I mean, it just, I mean, we could have a whole discussion just on the fact that that word just that label activates so many different things, right? We Like nobody wants that label, including the doctors don't want to give you that label, right? They're saying, you're not an alcoholic. I don't want to give you that label. Yeah. <laughs> Which We end up like skirting around the issue and creating a platform where people can actually talk about, yeah, I'm doing this thing that makes me feel not so great. And yes. I don't really know why I do it. I think I know why I do it. And I really try to stop. And then I don't know how to stop. And I keep going back to it, even though it makes me feel terrible. Like that's what people need to be talking about like who like I literally never use the word addiction I never I have never once in my professional life said to somebody you're an alcoholic or an addict I just don't use those words it just doesn't I never say I mean I don't even know if I consider myself an alcoholic I just say I quit drinking and I feel a lot better and by the way alcohol is addictive you know right well, I think there's something there's there. I will say though, there's, and when we're working with family members who are trying to help someone, you know, family members will often say to somebody, you're an alcoholic, go get treatment, you know, like <laughs> as if that's going to help, right? It does. It doesn't, but sets up a platform for people to say, no, I'm not. But I do like if somebody is going to the 12 step fellowship and they identify with that in a way that's helpful to them. And if it joins them to a community that they feel like, okay, I'm part of a community and this resonates with us, it can be an incredibly powerful thing. But it's a chosen, it's a self-chosen, this works for me. It's not my job as a treatment professional to tell you who you are. 
right? It's my job as a professional to help you go on a journey and try to speed up that journey. Like I've got some tools that I can use that help you speed up that journey for yourself. <laughs> but I'm on the journey with you to help you try to figure out what your values are, what kind of life you want to live, what are you struggling with? Are there skills that you can use that will mitigate those struggles? It's not to tell you who you are and attach this big label that means so many things to people. Like it just yeah. And to to tell you that you have a character defect and that yeah, that's another thing that I'm like Right. Well, so I know when you started, you know, AA or 12 step was sort of the only approach that or the the best known, you know, that people referred people to. And you said that when you started your business, people would actually refer people to you who basically weren't, quote unquote, ready to be 100% abstinent or, you know, rehabs would say, come back when you're ready to admit you're an alcoholic or something like that. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah, so evidence-based treatments have been around for a very long time, actually. I mean, one of the reasons why we started the Center for Motivation and Change is because we were trained in these evidence-based strategies, but we were working in treatment systems where nobody was using them. You know, there was this big divide between what was happening in academic research settings where they were trying to identify like what helps people make behavior change, right? Like there's there's decades worth of experience, evidence around something called motivational interviewing, right? It's a therapeutic approach where you're working with somebody to really try to activate their internal motivation, right? It's not a power dynamic. You're trying to help them work with their ambivalence, understand their ambivalence, and you're not taking a, I'm the expert, you're the you're the client and let me tell you what to do approach. It's really like, I'm curious about you and I want to help you get to where you want to go to, right? That has so many positive effects for many things, including substance use disorders, but like it helps people take their medication. If you take that approach, it takes helps people take their medication more willingly. Like it helps with lots of things, but it was never used in addiction programs. Um, you know, in addiction programs, which is, you know, people with substance use issues, they struggle with ambivalence, right? That, that, the substances work in some way that is quite meaningful. So to ask somebody to give that up, you're going to have ambivalence, right? They're going to be like, yes, I want to give it up. And no, I don't, because it works for me in some way. 
So you've got to be able to work with that ambivalence somehow. And the weirdest thing is that in addiction treatment programs, the model for sure 20 years ago, I think it's changing now, was this very confrontational approach. You know, like you got to confront, you got to confront that denial, you've got to tear people down to their core in order for them to get better. They've got to address those character defects. They've got to hit rock bottom, like all of these concepts that are like, oh, how did we end up there? You know, so we were trained in all these other approaches and we just were like, we got to create a treatment program that uses these approaches and prove that people get better um, and people like in the real world. Um, and I, I say to people all the time, like, we did not make this stuff up. This was in, this was in the world. It was available. It's available to every treatment provider. The problem is people don't pick it up. Um, and that, that's the profound disservice. Again, I think things are changing, thankfully, but it's been a pretty hard fought battle. Um, and you know, the, the abstinence versus the harm reduction, you know, it used to be the only success with addiction problems or substance use disorders was abstinence, right? Like, yeah, that's really successful for a lot of people. And some people really need to decide to get there. There's a lot of people who like, really want to abstain from alcohol, but they want to have pot in their life. Okay. Like maybe that's something that you need to work through and make that decision for yourself. I want to help you collect that evidence, be thoughtful about it, be intentional about it and keep it above the surface. Cause I think what people do with substances, there's so much shame and stigma. They go underground, you know, and they think they, think they can't talk about it. They, they try to work it out all by themselves um, versus like, getting into a, whether it's a therapy relationship or a friendship relationship or relationship with somebody like you, where they're listening to these ideas of like, oh, I can actually, I can say this out loud. I can talk to somebody about it. I can say like, oh, this is what I tried this week. It didn't work out like I thought it was going to, or I already had great success. I moderated all week. You know, I was able to moderate all week and I'm going to try to see what happened that week that allowed me to do that so successfully. And can I do it again? You know, or do I moderate successfully for two months at a time. And then I have a binge that is so horrific that I never want to do that again. So I have to take drinking off the table because I always end up having that binge, you know, for whatever reason. And I have to get myself to where I'm not going to drink because I don't want that to happen, even though I moderate successfully the rest of the time, you know, like people have to make like very deep personal choices that works for their life, that works for their values. And it's, it's a process. It's a learning process. I love that you said that about ambivalence because I don't know anyone, myself included, who has finally decided to take alcohol off the table after loving it. Like you said, it works for certain things and, you know, works better in the beginning than it does at the end. But who hasn't gone through that ambivalence, that debate, that no, and then yes, and then no, and then yes, for years. I mean, I worried about my drinking and read Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp and wrote myself a letter saying, oh shit, I think I have a real issue with alcohol eight years before I finally stopped. And just to look at that ambivalence, I literally typed out in a in a Word doc, oh my God, I'm really worried about my drinking. I think I have a problem. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. I have to stop on a Tuesday went back to that same document on Thursday and wrote up top, just kidding, definitely don't problem, nothing to see here. Like in in evidence, in black and white, just that going back and forth. Yeah. And for me, if I were working with you, I'd be like, okay, so what happened between writing that list 
And that decision Thursday night when you were like ready to have the wine again, um, there were probably 50 different variables that contributed to you going from I'm set to, and I'm actually really ambivalent. Um, and then the other thing is like, so in the invitation to pro- a change approach, one of the ways that we talk about things is that behaviors make sense, right? So it works in some way and it can be quite powerful actually. And that's true for any behavior, right? We, we repeat things that work for us in some way. You add substances, especially alcohol, like that's actually impacting the brain, which then impacting your dopamine receptors. So if you're kind of artificially hitting your dopamine receptors with a couple glasses of wine, and it's more complicated, I'm oversimplifying it to say it's just dopamine, but in terms of the pleasure receptors of the brain, but you're artificially giving yourself something that feels good, right? So that chemical is impacting your neurotransmitters. When you take that chemical out, your neurotransmitters are like, hey, what? how do I get that again? (laughs) So you have these craving states so that if you don't put a new behavior in there, you know, if you don't replace it with something and it's not like you can, you have one behavior that replaces your drinking behavior, right? You probably have 15 different behaviors that replace your drinking behavior. Um, that, that takes a long time to learn. takes a long time to figure out. Um, you know, you've got to be able to like appreciate, like, I've got to learn a whole if I'm drinking because I'm managing my stress, you know, or I'm kind of winding down at the end of the day, I got to find other ways to do that, which might mean I have to change my work relationship. It might change what I do when I come home from work. It might change what I eat. It might change what time I go to bed. It might change how I interact with my partner at the end of the day. Like there's so many things that go into, I'm trying to have no alcohol at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's just, I think people also like when we talk about substance use problems, people try to simplify it down to am I drinking or not drinking? Like it's so freaking complicated. Um and to actually have compassion for yourself in that I got a lot of stuff I gotta learn and I'm not yeah. gonna be perfect at it and it's gonna take me some time and yeah I'm gonna be ambivalent. Yeah. In that. And it's a process, right? Like you said, there is a reason that you want to drink, whether it's you're stressed, you're bored, you're overwhelmed, you feel like you need a reward, you want to celebrate. And it is difficult to figure out other ways to meet those needs, especially in our like time compressed world. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, you know, what got you into the behavior in the first place, you know, so how it quote unquote worked for you in the beginning that's going to be very different once it's become a habit. So then there's like also then the habit component of it of like, it's so on autopilot. I just do it out of autopilot. I'm not even thinking about it anymore. So that's a whole thing to figure out. And you know, the reality is like a lot of people who have substance use issues, like they're struggling with something else, you know, um, you know, whether it's like I'm struggling with deep anxiety or depression or relationship issues, or I don't know how to, take care of my body or whatever it is, you know, so it's, it's not just about drinking or not. It's okay. What's, what else is going on there? Um, and how can we help you with that too? And how can you tend to those needs? Um, cause women in particular, um, you know, studies show that women in particular drink their triggers are more frequently anxiety and depression. Um, you know, so, and then our bodies, like we don't metabolize alcohol in the same way men do, you know, we don't, we have more fat in our bodies. So, and we have less water, so our bodies absorb it more. So it's in our organs longer, which has a greater impact on our physical states. You know, our hormones are a part of it. You know, there's, um, 
studies that show like drinking increases for women during menopausal periods of life. Um, cause so many women like end up drinking in response to perimenopausal symptoms, you know, like I'm not sleeping a couple glasses of wine might help me sleep. I'm irritable. A couple glasses of wine might take that edge off. Right. So there's just for the female body in particular, alcohol's like pretty complicated, um, in terms of its impact. I think women just should be aware of that too. Um, and well, you know, not like, only that, what I see too is like alcohol is sort of the most prescribed drug by friends and family and society and advertising and sort of it's this acceptable drug to take and not only acceptable encouraged, like if you're having a bad day or you're stressed or whatever, the common advice from your friends, your mother, your husband, whoever is like here have a glass of wine, then were you to admit that you drink too much for women, and especially for mothers, it's one of the most shameful things that you can do to have, you know, an issue with alcohol to drink too much as a mother. Oh, for sure. Because if you get labeled as having a substance use problem, that inherently means you're out of control and being an out of control mother is really not okay. Um, so um, and, you know, the burdens of motherhood are part of why women drink, right? Um, you know, women, especially now, have a lot of roles. Um, and, you know, you add on, like, maybe I'm taking care of aging parents. I've got kids. I'm trying to work full time. Like, the role demand on women is as caretakers is massive. I was curious when you mentioned this. I haven't asked this before about perimenopause, about women in motherhood and that sort of crunch time when you're caring for aging parents as well as kids. And so many of us work now in terms of women in the workplace and children and are having children later. I have seen all the statistics, and I don't think this is new, that the biggest drinkers are baby boomers and Gen Xers. And I'm I'm a Gen Xer, and, and I see that amongst all my friends, that millennials and Gen Zs drink much less and less often than us. And I wonder if it's it's very complex, both in terms of the culture we grew up in, of encouraging alcohol. It's when, you know, the French paradox and wine and everything came about where, you know, good for your heart or wine is or whatever that crap medical advice was, but also the aging factor. I haven't thought of that before. Yeah, no, there's, I, I can't remember who I was talking to. And I'm, t- I'm, I became a therapist because I can talk about feelings and I cannot hold numbers in my head. I'm terrible at it. So I'm not going to get the years right. They did studies about um, women and drinking and it was in the early 2000s and how women like caught up with men mm-hmm. with binge drinking and just drinking in general. So it was like as gender roles changed and as women got more in the workplace and, you know, like got more. Yeah autonomy and power and access to things like that, they caught up with drinking too, which is like not good. Like we caught up in equality in some ways and then caught up with drinking, which is, wasn't so good for us. But I think it's just, it's stress. I mean, I think like it's a big for women in particular and for men in different ways. Um, it's, you know, drinking is what a lot of people do in response to stress and, and stress shows up for different reasons and in different ways. You know, there's stress associated with racism. There's stress associated with living with childhood trauma. There's stress associated with being a woman in the world because things are still not equal, you know, like sexuality. I mean, there's like, so depending on how much 
stressors you have based on your standing in our culture, you know, alcohol can be really appealing um, to silence at all. Um, and then depending on your resources, you know, it's nice to say like, yeah, don't have a couple of glasses of wine, just go to the gym. What if I have to get childcare? I can't afford to go to the gym. I, you know, like I come home from work, I've got like 45 minutes to feed my three kids and then got, you know, I mean, it's just like people are juggling a lot of stuff. So even a bunch of the self-care ideas, like they cost money, they take time. And I think a lot of women just don't feel like they have any time at all um, to tend to themselves. And so that's another big component of the invitation to change approach, which like the research on self-compassion um, has really come out in the last decade. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, that wasn't even a concept that was discussed. Um, and this wonderful woman named Kristen Neff and her partner, Chris Germer, have done a lot of work on self-compassion, which is very different than self-care. Like self-compassion is really figuring out how to bring kindness to yourself and treating yourself as you would a good friend. And I think women being caretakers, we take care of everybody else, like we're paying attention to everybody else. You're putting yourself last most of the time. <laughs> That's the woman I talk to. Um, and being really critical, internally critical. And I think a lot of women with substance use issues, their internal critic is brutal. The things that they feel about themselves and say about themselves um, for having the problem that they have, it's horrible. Um, it's so oh my brutal. God. I used to wake up and the very first thing I would think to myself, despite in theory outwardly looking really good, was what the fuck is wrong with you? Get your shit together. Literally, that was the thing that would go through my mind every morning. And now I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, the coffee smells good. And, you know, <laughs> my hip kind of hurts and right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, like, This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. But at that point, I mean, I've met you for one hot second, but I bet if your girlfriend who you love dearly or a sibling you love dearly said, I'm really like worried about my drinking, you probably wouldn't look at them and be like, what the help get your shit together get your right? shit together what the fuck that? is wrong with you yeah <laughs> right. exactly um you know so i think the self-compassion piece of it is really being able to and you know the studies on self-compassion are the people who practice self-compassion and actually really develop that as a skill they're more able to stick with tough stuff and hard things um because 
they can, they, they relate to the learning process differently. You know, so when you, I mean, anything we learn, right. We're not good at it to start. We screw it up. We like, don't get things exactly right. Um, and we, most things we keep, we have the capacity to keep learning, right. There's something about substance use because there's so much shame about it that people think, Oh, I screwed up. That must mean I'm a real screw up or maybe I'm not serious or maybe I don't really want this or, or if anyone knew, if anybody knew exactly, there's a bazillion thoughts there. Um, you know, if you can bring some self-compassion to that and be able to be like, wow, I, I had this plan for Friday night. It didn't work out that way. I did X, Y, and Z instead. Ugh, wow. And I'm really suffering this morning. I feel really bad this morning. How do I go back and try to understand what happened so I can actually try to have that not happen again and like maybe talk about it with somebody so I can learn something else because I actually don't know what I'm doing and that's okay to not what I'm it's okay to not know what you're doing which I think is another thing that a lot of women struggle with is to like just acknowledge like I don't know what I'm doing it's okay it's uh, of course you don't okay um that's why you listen to a podcast like this or this that's why you like talk to somebody about what you're struggling with um there's just so much pressure to be okay all the time um, and have it all together, which is just. Well, so let's talk about the invitation to change approach, because I want to dig into like what it is and how you move through it and what's the evidence-based skills. So say someone comes to you like that woman, maybe without all the underlying trauma, say, you know, I come to you and I'm sure there were lots of reasons I drank and I say, I'm drinking a bottle of half a wine a night. I promise myself I'm going to take a break. I make it maybe four days and I'm pissed and irritable the entire time. And where do you start with the invitation to change approach? Well, so I'll just give you and your listeners a little background on the invitation to change approach. So we have our treatment program, the Center for Motivation and Change, but we also have a nonprofit called the CMC Foundation for Change. And in that, we've been working with family members for, you know, the last decade, developing this strategy to try to help them be able to help a loved one. Because family members are on, you know, the front lines when they have somebody that they love, um, who's got a substance use problem, they want to help, and they don't know how to help. And they typically get really bad advice, you know, the whole like, let your loved one bottom out, use tough love, confront them, do an intervention, all of these things, right? <laughs> it's just like, there's actually other things you can do to help your loved one. So we developed the invitation to change approach to help them. And then we turned it, we used it to shift some of the things that we're doing with the person who's coming to us with the actual problem, because it's based on cognitive behavioral strategies, dialectical behavioral strategies, self-compassion, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is all about like understanding your values and figuring out how to make decisions based on your values. So it's all these evidence-based concepts in like this very flexible model that we can work with people wherever they want to start. You know, mm -hmm. so if you came to me and said, yeah, I'm not drinking for four days and I'm really irritable and I drink for three days and I feel really bad about it and I want things to be different. You're very different than somebody who's coming into me and saying, yeah, my husband thinks I have a drinking problem. I like, I don't even want to talk about it. He's such a nightmare. I want to talk about my husband. Right. So I'd be working with those two people very differently, right? <laughs> and I may know the person whose husband's worried about her probably is struggling with her alcohol use, but I'm not going to start there. I'm going to try to work with her on what she actually wants to work on. And we'll get to the odds are we'll get to the drinking. All right. So <laughs> I'd start with ambivalence with her, right? With you, it would be more like, let's understand how your behaviors make sense. 
let's really do a cost benefit analysis of like every part of alcohol, how alcohol like is the benefits to you in your relationships, in your work, with your work, how you spend your time, your friendships, how you deal with your emotions, like all the benefits, like everything that you get from it. I also want to know how it's impacting you in not such great ways, because those are probably there too. And we're going to talk about those too. But if I understand the benefits, I'm going to be able to then be like, okay, so you're irritable in those four days. And that wears you down. So by the time you get to Friday, you're like, Ugh, I need a drink. Um, Cause yes. I'm just irritable for four days. If we can understand what, what's contributing to that irritability and then be able to figure out like, are there strategies or things that need to be happening to help you reduce that irritability? Is that stress? Is that conflict? Is it, you don't know how to resolve conflict, you know, like you've got emotions that you're not expressing, like irritability can be a bazillion different things, right? So and part of help. it's just alcohol withdrawal, right? Like I'm irritable. Totally. Well, I was just going to say like, and it may be that you're drinking a little bit more on those weekends and stop drinking and really are having post-acute withdrawal, you know, mm-hmm. four or five days in and your brain saying a drink's going to make me feel better. Let's go back to drinking. Mm-hmm. So I would for sure be, you know, assessing that and then being trying to figure out like, okay, are there things that would help you with that in the short term while you learn the behaviors you know, because there's a lot, like I've said before, like there's a lot of behaviors we have to learn to learn. I, I 100% of the time, and I say this to family members, sobriety is a learned behavior. You've been sober for seven years. You've learned how to do that. Yeah. Every day. Tell right? me more and, about that because that's interesting that sobriety is a learned behavior. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. I mean, week one, do you feel like you knew what you were doing? No. <laughs> I had a coach, so she was like telling me what to do, um, but not in the same way that a 12-step program was, right? Like go to a meeting every day, you know, do all this stuff. Uh, you know, she was like, go to bed early. You're going to crave sugar. Eat something at 4 p.m. Get the alcohol out of your house. Like, you know, that was telling me what to do. <laughs> right. And then you started to learn how to do that. Right. Yes. You started yes. to learn how to eat differently, go to bed at a different time. You know, like somebody had to give you a bunch of strategies. You had to decide which ones you were going to pick up and then you had to practice them. Yes. You know, like not eating sugar. Like if that was the only thing you did, probably wouldn't have worked. No. You did seven different things week one through month three. Yeah. And then at month three, there was probably a whole bunch of other stuff that you're like, Oh, I got to figure this out too. Oh Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, I got to figure out how to go to parties. And Oh, I got to figure out what to do at Thanksgiving dinner when aunt June is intoxicated beside me, whatever. When my mother comes at Christmas, lover. (laughs) Exactly. But so like, you just have to keep learning how to deal with all of these moments that previously were associated with alcohol. You've got to learn how to deal with them. Yeah. Um, And so learned behavior. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, because I mean, so the other part of the invitation to change approach is really helping people think of this as a behavior that you have to learn. You learned how to drink, right? You didn't just have one drink and become a problematic drinker. You learned over years that alcohol works for this and alcohol works for that and alcohol is here and it's there, like all of those learning things, right? So then you have to learn your way out of it. Um, and all of that takes practice. And the other thing that we're intolerant of is like when somebody has a substance use problem, we just want them to cut it out. We just want them to stop. Having compassion for it. This person actually has to practice. They have to practice. They have to like be able to screw up 
they have to be able to like not know what they're doing and get back on the horse and have compassion for like, Oh, okay. He didn't know how to do that. Let's, let's figure that out. And then like, just this idea, like we have a lot of tolerance for practicing other things. We don't have much tolerance for practicing how to change a substance use problem. And it takes a ton um, over a long time for most people. Um, you know, and I, I disclose this sometimes I just will to you because I like you, you know, like I didn't, I've never had a drinking problem, but I had a terrible binge eating problem all the way through college or whatever. And I've got, I've got cues. Like if I'm stressed, if I'm like struggling with somebody, if I've got whatever and, and I'm stressed, like I don't keep my trigger foods in my house to this day. I haven't thrown up in 25 years, but I don't keep that stuff in my house because like you put the perfect storm around me. I'll know that that behavior works. I don't want to put myself, I don't want to put myself at risk for doing that. Like I just take it off the table for myself, but that's like, do I ever think about it? I never think about it. It's not like I think like, am I going to binge and throw up today or not? Like it's not even in my head anymore because it's been so long, but I've made a lot of changes to my life that protect me and make it so that it's not in my head ever, you know, and that took a long time. Yeah. I mean, to this day, it's kind of funny when you mentioned that I don't keep any wine in my house. My husband was like, all right, I'll drink beer. He still drinks. But for me, that's not, I'm never somehow tempted to drink his beer. I have a ton of non-alcoholic beer, but like wine for me, it would just be the elephant in the room. I would always know it was there. And therefore, even though I don't drink, I would have to exercise willpower would occupy the space in the back of my mind. And it's just when it's not there, I don't think about it, you know? Yeah. And that's one of the components of the self of the invitation to change approach is something that we call understanding with self-awareness to really like understand, be self-aware of like what, so you did the work there, right? You're like, I register how I feel and what's on my mind when there's a bottle of wine in my house. Yeah. And it's different for me than when there's not a bottle of wine in my house. (laughs) So instead of pretending like that's not happening, you're able to be like, okay, that happens for me. I'm going to make the decision to not have wine in my house um, because I don't want to deal with how it makes me feel, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one day at a time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy 
You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. So that's like self-awareness coming to the table to help you make good decisions for the behavior that you're trying to keep in place. So science and kindness, kindness, meaning self-compassion, behavior change over time. Is that the science that you mentioned Kristen Neff, like researched and said works or, or what else is within that? Well, so... <laughs> People often ask about that, why we put those two things together. Of the evidence-based strategies in the invitation to change and just our approach, they all include kindness, you know, like, so the, the motivational interviewing I was talking about, like, that is very different than a confrontational approach, right? That the, when you're like using motivational interviewing as a strategy, you're deeply caring what the other person thinks and what they feel and why they're doing what they're doing. And you're not bringing your judgments to the table. You're actually like, it's not my job to judge you. It's my job to create a space where you feel safe enough to talk about what you're really struggling with um, so that we can do that together. And you can actually get all this stuff to the surface, right? Because it's so freaking buried because you feel so much shame about it. If I'm confronting you, if, you, if I'm challenging you, like, and you feel shame, you're not going to share that shame with me. <laughs> Like, you're just not going to do it. So like the, all the approaches in this and like the acceptance and commitment therapy, it's all about values. It's really being able to say to you, like what you value in your life and what, like when you're hopefully 99 years old and on your deathbed, what you want to be remembered for is going to be different than what I want to be remembered for. Um, you know, and being, giving people permission to be like, bring your values to the table, you know, bring what your community values, what your family values, like, and get in touch with that so that you can yeah. use it to inform your decisions because, you know, people come from different family cultures. People come from different norms and expectations and, you know, to just be compassionate for our differences versus what traditional addiction treatment has been, which is like, this is the right way. And if you're not going to do it the right way, you're wrong. And there's a problem with you versus the treatment system being able to be like, here's a bunch of things. <laughs> Let's help you figure out the thing that works for you um, in your life, with your resources, with your family, like with that your schedule, with your with, yes. belief system. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And all your different identities, you know, I mean, that you bring to the table. So, I mean, I think, and then um, the Kristen Neff piece of it, you know, like, and I even reacted to it when I first was learning self-compassion. I was like, cause I can be pretty, I can be pretty hard. I'm a pretty driven person. And I was like, Ugh, that's like too, so I'm like, I don't want to do any of that self-compassion stuff. Like that sounds too hippy dippy. I don't want to do it. <laughs> it got me through the pandemic. You know, I did my first training like right before the pandemic. I don't think I would have been able to do what I did through the pandemic if I didn't really shift and start to think about myself and think about my work through that lens, it's quite powerful. Um, and you know, the science part of it is she's actually done research and like given people strategies and compared them to people who weren't using those strategies, you know, and the differences between those two groups, you know, so we now have some evidence that like, okay, it actually, it is impactful. 
It really, does, it really does change how people approach problems. So we should be doing it. Oh my gosh, I'm pretty driven too, and hard on myself. And but the one thing is, um, I'm kind of like I describe myself as a gold star girl. Like I'm just like I like my pats on the head. I, if I have a job, I like to get it done really well. And so my coach was like, every night you go to bed without drinking, I don't care what else you do. If you cry, your kids watch TV, you, you know, eat all the Oreos. She was like, you get a gold star. And so I was like, yes, I'm getting all the gold stars. Yeah. Well, that's so that is part of the your coach was using good science with you because, you know, we punish people with substance use problems. We punish them verbally. We punish them. We lock them up in jails. We confront them. We do all sorts of reinforcement for positive behavior is the most powerful thing yeah. for behavior change. You know, I mean, it, it's like people, if you're reinforcing them for positive behaviors, they will do more of them. And we do that with our kids. Like in theory, you know that with your kids. Yes. With your, but I, with your pets, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. But again, I think it's just because, um, substance use problems are so stigmatized. Yeah. Relate to it differently. And, you know, and that, this is true for people who struggle with weight issues. You know, that's another very stigmatized problem. You know, I mean, there's just, there's just certain things that we judge. There are things that are acceptable to judge as if that person is morally deficient or doesn't have willpower. Right. Yeah, they're weak, they're lazy. There's all these. Yeah, for sure. And somehow like weight and substances are two things that, that people feel very entitled to judge people on. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Um, yeah. And others too, but those are two that I think suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so the other thing that, that I definitely wanted to ask you about, there's so much, but, I know that some of your evidence-based approach are around based on the use of medication. Can you tell me a little bit about those options? What works? What, what has helped some people versus others? Yeah. So, um, I'm a psychologist, so I'm not actually prescribing medications, but you know, we, we are able to kind of say, Hey, these might be options. And here's this lovely psychiatrist who can work with you on that or go talk to your GP. So this is like, I can talk about a bunch of things that you're listeners should then go talk to an MD about. (laughs) But, you know, there's a range of medications. Um, You know, one that is incredibly helpful to people is something called naltrexone. It's an interesting medication. Um, It's a opiate receptor blocker. So, you know, if somebody's struggling with opiates and they're taking naltrexone, it sits on that receptor and blocks the effects of opiates. So it makes it so they don't feel anything, which kind of takes the fun out of getting high, right? So that's helpful to people with that struggle. What they've found with people with uh, alcohol issues is, and it doesn't, it's a peculiar medication. It either works incredibly well or kind of doesn't work at all. And you kind of know pretty quickly <laughs> if that, what it's going to do for you. So it's for a lot of people, it's worth a shot, but for people who take it, who it works for, um, it reduces alcohol cravings. It, it just seems to kind of like take it off your mind. Some, you know, so for people who are really walking around, like thinking about drinking all the time, it, it can soften that experience. Um, and then, you know, in Europe, actually, it's used as a moderation medication. A lot of people, they will prescribe it because people will drink less on it. Um, I had a guy who, you know, <laughs> we worked really hard for about a year and a half. He drank six beers every night um, and he really wanted to change. And we tried everything behaviorally. I swear to God, we tried everything. <laughs> and he was really trying the whole time and we didn't make that much it didn't make that much difference. And he finally agreed to go see a psychiatrist and got on naltrexone. And when he started it, he said, 
you know, it kind of changed beer into Coca-Cola. He's like, I would never sit down and drink six Coca-Colas. Never. And so it just kind of made the beers be like, yeah, I only kind of want two. I don't really want, I don't need or want more. So like he was an example of it had a dramatic effect on him. Like it just like took the, he just didn't want to keep drinking. Um, so it's worth a shot. It's, you know, it doesn't have a ton of side effects for people. And so I always say to people, it's worth a shot. You know, there's another medication that works in some, like completely differently, but also works on craving states, which is something called Camperol, um, which um, again, some people really benefit from, but it's a hard medication because it's like three pills, three times a day, which nobody's compliant. <laughs> nobody's compliant with medication. That's just a lot. There's um, disulfiram, which is antabuse, which people get scared. They hear antabuse, you know, depend like, cause it used to be used in this very like controlling way. They used to give people very high doses on it. Um, you know, for people who are really motivated. So antabuse, if you're taking it and you drink, it makes you f- feel very unwell. So you, yeah you stop drinking and it's a real deterrent to want to drink, right? Sort of like so, a hangover times 10. Yeah. Or the a sudden case of food poisoning and the flu combined, you know, okay. like people just get sweaty and just yeah. have a headache and turn I've red. I've had clients who take it just because they're like, then it's off the table. Like if I'm going away on a girl's weekend and I don't want to drink, if it's going to be hard for me, I know if I take antabuse, I just can't. Well, so that's a perfect way to take it, um, you know, and like one of the ways that I describe it to people is if you're somebody like what you were describing yourself, where you're like, yeah, I'm really motivated, right? Like in the morning to not drink, but by the, but by the end of the day, I've changed my mind because I'm stressed or people are inviting me to drink or I'm dealing with all these triggers all day long. If you take that medication in the morning, the decision has been made, right? Like drinking's off the table. You've decided which really can help people then go face that thing that's kind of triggering for them with the decision to drink off the table. So then they can start to figure out other things of like, how do I actually cope with this? Or how do I decide I don't want to go? Maybe I just don't want to go to this because it's not fun or whatever. But a lot of people walk around with a lot of chatter in their head of like, am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? Am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? You know, which is just stressful in itself. So antabuse for a lot of people can just be a way to make that stress go away. It's just done. Um, and that a lot of people are kind of scared of it. What are sort of, cause I've heard that too. And I've heard people be like, yeah. God, I don't want to ask my doctor for antabuse. They're going to put something in my chart. What, yeah. what do you think about like, what are the downsides or are there? Well, again, like if you go online and Google in about four seconds, you're going to like find all sorts of horror stories on the internet. Right. So there's all that scary stuff, um, which that's true for anything now, if you Google it. Um, but, uh, and there's some doctors who, you know, aren't particularly educated about it, um, and may have, you know, not great reactions to it. Um, you know, addiction psychiatrists um, can be really helpful to seek out if you happen to have access to them in your community or access to somebody who's specialized in addiction. Because like I, one of the ways I describe it is like, they're just not afraid of anything. They're very trained to be like, oh, okay, that's, tell me about your drinking. You know, they just don't have that like, oh my God, you're drinking how much response, which some people, some psychiatrists and doctors can. Um, so it's always good to just kind of look in your doctor's bio of like, do they have any addiction exposure or treatment? And if they don't, and you don't feel comfortable, maybe having a consult with somebody who does. But yeah, I remember my first psychiatrist therapist, my first therapist, who I ever told about my drinking, 
I specifically chose him because on his page, he had listed anxiety and addiction as some of the things he dealt with. And so, of course, I went in there and I said, oh, my God, I've got so much anxiety, my boss, my job, my kids, my business travel, X, Y, Z. And I said, and by the way, I'm drinking a bottle of wine each night. And he said, all right, let's talk about your drinking. And I was like, no, 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 you didn't hear about my boss. You know what I mean? But it was helpful. I mean, that's why I chose him. I just didn't want to deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if if you if you've done your research and feel like it might be helpful to you and it's something you want to talk about and you interact with a provider who shames you in some way or makes you feel like ah, that felt like a terrible exchange, like give yourself permission to try somebody else. Like that's yeah. not the provider for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I really, I encourage people to trust their instincts. You know, if somebody's making you feel bad in any way, when you're talking about this stuff, keep looking. Um, you know, like there's a lot of people who, We'll approach it differently and you deserve you yeah. deserve not to not to be shamed in any way. One hopefully I'm hoping this podcast lets people hear so many different voices where it's more normalized and not, you know, the yeah. end of the world. Like bringing on people like you, I think is so helpful just to hear that there are other approaches and yeah. and ways that might resonate more with the way they want to change their behavior. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit before we got on. I mean, I think the um self-help resources and options have just expanded so much. I mean, it's just so cool. Like, you know, I've got like, there's Dharma recovery, there's refuge recovery, there's women in sobriety, there's, you know, I mean, we were talking about Tempest, you know, I mean, there's just, you can Google, I want to help with my drinking now and end up with like 10 different like things to try, which is great. Um, you know, because you just got to keep trying, you know, yeah. like I just don't give up on the process. Um, and uh, you don't let the shame consume you because you're yeah. worth your worth. Well, and I know we've effort. talked about a lot, but I'm a lot of your work is around the families or loved ones of someone who's struggling. And obviously, most of the people who listen to this podcast are women who are thinking about themselves. I would say that's the vast majority. But a lot of times they don't know how to communicate with their family, their spouse, their friends. Often they're either worried about them or their spouse, family, friends are big drinkers too and don't want them to stop drinking. Any suggestions on on how to view that, approach that? Yeah, sure. Um, so Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, our book is written for the family member. Okay. You know, and it's like literally like a soup to nuts, like, Here's how to approach your loved one. So I've had clients who've given that book to their spouse okay. or to their parent and said, Hey, I'm struggling. It would be helpful to me if you took a look, look at this book. Our most recent book, which is the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, um, is a just a shorter, like easier, like here's the invitation to change approach. Um, and it's just, it's all about helping people like understand the problem from a different lens, you know, instead of thinking my, partner's a horrible person because she drinks too much, um, you know, or a terrible mother or whatever. Like, let me actually like step back and be like, huh, wonder why she's drinking so much. Let me be curious. Let me be curious about that. It's full of communication strategies to help people figure out how to talk about things without instigating a bunch of defensiveness, right? Because we could make each other defensive in about four seconds, depending on how we ask a question, the tone of voice we use, like all sorts of stuff, right? But when it comes to talking about addiction, 
most people use a lot of strategies that make the other person defensive. Um, they lecture, they don't ask questions. They, I mean, it's, it's intense. Um, so we try to give the person on the other side there effective ways to help the person that they ultimately care and, and care about and want to help. They just don't know how because they're also in our culture, which is telling them they're codependent. They've got to be tough. They've got to, I mean, the tough love concept. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like how the, I don't know what that means. And if and you. So describe to me what the bad advice is that, I mean, tough love, they have to hit bottom. Um, so just, just give me what the wrong things to do are just at the high level in case people have heard this kind of stuff. Well, the, the, the thing that I would love to eradicate and have never be said again is this concept of like, people can't change until they bottom out. Like, that's not true. And actually that could result in death. Like, like, I don't know about you, but I would, there's a million things I would rather do to try to be helpful to my loved one than let that happen. Um, and you know, one of the things that we say to family members is, so I went to school for this, right? I went to school for many years. I've got lots of training. I've been exposed to a lot of stuff. My job can be pretty hard sometimes. I get scared about my clients. I get like, it's really scary sometimes what people will do to themselves. Um, I get a lot of support. I get a lot of training to deal with that. Family members are on the front line, seeing their loved ones doing pretty risky things sometimes or like really not taking care of themselves. They don't have any training. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like nobody, they didn't go to school for this, right? So can we give them, so our mission is to give them these evidence-based ideas packaged in a way that lay people are, can be like, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. I'm going to do it this way um, so that they can, and have compassion for themselves too. Because um, like they get a bunch of labels, like the whole codependency thing, which is just another label. Like you line, you line 10 people up and ask them what codependency means. You're going to get 10 different answers. <laughs> like it's just, it's just another, it's not a diagnosis. It's not a real thing. Um, you know, it's, a different set of behaviors for, you know, and like wanting to help your loved one and maybe even being panicked trying to help your loved one. Like that's all pretty normal human behavior. Um, and if you give that person the skills they need to be more effective and they're motivated to pick those skills up, okay, then they could actually really have a potentially positive impact on the problem that their family is facing. And the, I promise you, your women listeners who are struggling with alcohol I bet a significant portion of them have somebody in their life who has a substance use problem that they're really worried about, or they've been on the receiving end of, or are witnessing, or grew up with, or whatever. Like, it's probably back there somewhere, right? So the, the invitation to change approach from the other lens of, maybe I'm struggling with my drinking, but I'm also really worried about my husband's drinking, or, you know, my sister's been to rehab three times and can't stop drinking or whatever it is, you know, I mean, these strategies from both sides for women, I've had lots of women that I've worked with who changed their behavior and then used the invitation to change approach to help a loved one. Um, their loved one. Yeah. 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 Um, I know I, I listened to Brenda Zane is a friend of mine. We both live in Seattle and I heard you on her podcast called um, Hope Stream. And when you were talking about people having no support and not knowing to do with their loved one, her podcast is all about, it's for parents of kids with substance use issues, you know, with 
fentanyl or drug abuse or whatever. And, you know, I can only imagine as a parent how terrifying and helpless you would feel and also how talking with people who don't get it could feel shame or even more helpless because they're like, oh, you know, like they feel like you should be blamed or they're just happy it's not their kid or you know what I mean? Like finding that support is so important. Yeah, no, parents, um, if your child has a substance use problem as a parent, whether you're saying it out loud or not, you think you caused the problem. Like, you know, like there was something something you did or did not do. Like parents walk around with so much burden when their kid are struggling. And, you know, I've always said like, I wish, I wish beyond addiction was like mandatory reading for parents of 13 year olds. Like if you, if you understood this stuff when your kids are going into adolescence so that you can respond and think about the problem in this like more effective way, because I mean, parents do completely understandable things, right? They, they hope the problem goes away. They're like, uh, just a stage, they're going to grow out of it, you know, like, (laughs) you know, or they lock it down and want to control them and punish them and ground them, you know, like all of those are completely understandable (laughs) responses, right? But you got to question whether or not they're effective, right? Because the pushing it away, hoping they grow out of it and not talking about it, all sorts of bad stuff comes out of that approach, right? Um, The I'm going to punish you, lock you down, that tends to be like, okay, that behavior is just going to go down deeper. It's just going to go way out of sight. They're not going to talk to you about it. They're not going to talk to you. So the invitation to change approach is really helping parents figure out like what are the mostly conversational strategies? Like how do I get my kid talking? How do I reinforce those healthy behaviors? How do I let natural consequences play a role here? There's a bunch of strategies in that um, that you can just use over because what you need to do with your 14-year-old is very different than what your 22-year-old needs. And it's very different than what your 35-year-old needs if you're and a parent. And do you cover or... those different ages? Or... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I have an 8-year-old and a 14-year-old. Yeah. So, And I know so many women who listen to this are parents um, and worried about what they've modeled for their children or how to talk. You know, they sometimes feel hypocritical saying anything and that's hard too or they want to stop drinking because their kids are noticing or they have regrets because they drank through their kids you know formative years in high school and now they're gone and you know they wish they hadn't yeah for sure yeah and I think that's happening for a lot of parents like especially around cannabis and things like that like you know oh I smoked pot as a kid it's it's fine Ah, cannabis is a very different ball game now like the Mm -hmm. the the stuff your kid is using now, it didn't exist when we were smoking pot. Can you say something a little bit more about that? Because I know when you said, okay, some people are drinking, but they're not quite ready to give up their cannabis use or talk a little bit about cannabis today and how it's different. So it's just, um, I mean, A, it's legal in a fair number of places. I I live in Washington state. It's legal here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just the different strains, the different, you know, potencies, the different ways to consume it. Um, you know, it used to be like, you could tell your kid was smoking pot because it would smell like pot and their room would smell like pot and their clothes would smell like pot, right? Like it was hard to hide it. Now your kid could be in their bedroom smoking a vape or eating a edible and you would never know. Um, so I think the, how do I actually monitor my kid? Um, the complexities of that have just changed so much. Um, you know, I, 
scare me to death. But um, you can manage that. That's probably a lot of your stress as, as a parent is just having to manage all of that. But, um, you know, I mean, I think the invitation to change is just about giving you communication strategies and um, ways to think about the behavior. So like if my kid is smoking pot, I'm sure I can be mad at them and be like, don't smoke pot in my house. And if you're not living the family values or whatever, or I can be curious and be like, okay, like what is my kid getting out of that? Is he really struggling with social anxiety? Is he feeling really, is he struggling in school and he's feeling really bad about that? And so smoking pot is a way to numb out, you know, like if you can really be compassionate and try to understand the behavior, then as a parent, you can go about like, okay, like what are, what are the things I need to help my kid with so that they don't turn to the substance to manage their feelings, um, which is, you know, that's what substances do for most people is it helps manage our feelings, right? It either amplifies things or it numbs things out or we're just altering, altering our emotions in some way. Um, you know, so if a kid is doing that early on, they're not learning how to regulate their emotions, um, you know, on their own, they're learning how to use a substance to regulate their emotions. And that will be problematic if that becomes a habit. Yeah. I love, I love just putting it in that way that they're using a substance to regulate their emotions, which is what I did. But every, you know, many, many people do that. And over time, that's going to become problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you got to have other strategies. Cause then like if a, if a kid is a daily pot user starting at 14 and, or, you know, sometime in the, those developmental years and they stop smoking pot when they're 24. There's so much. I just did an evaluation on a kid that this was true for. And like, it's like he's emotionally kind of stunted. Like he actually doesn't, he doesn't know what his emotions are. He doesn't know how to deal with his emotions because they've been muted by daily pot use. Like he just, and now he's like this big, gigantic raw nerve at 22 years old. Like he's just like, feels like he's on fire because he's feeling his emotions for the first time, you know, and it's like painful. Um, you know, and you know, he was a, he was a kid who like a lot of it was underground. His parents didn't know he was a good student, you know, like he was popular. He was like, and so there wasn't like obvious problems, um, you know, but he was managing a lot of emotions, um, with a substance. So, and now he's got to figure that out starting from scratch. Um, so I feel like we've covered so much ground that's incredibly helpful for me. And I know it will be for so many of our listeners. How can people get this book, follow up with you, learn more about um, your center, all that good stuff? So uh, the most recent book, that workbook um, that has the invitation to change, um, it's just the invitation to change workbook.com. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, our nonprofit is um, cmcffc.org. So that has a lot of free content. It has all sorts of free resources for family members, you know. So if you have a family member who you would like have a little bit more awareness of how to approach you or collaborate with you, um, the foundation is a great place to send them. Um, and then the motivation and change is the website for the different treatment options. And the book is Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. Very cool. Well, I will put all of those links in the show notes. And I, I also, you know, in preparing for this, read a fabulous interview with you about all this in the New York Times. So I'll link to that as well. But thank you so much I'm for so, taking the time to come on. I'm so glad you're doing this and 
for everybody listening. Just keep at it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.